You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hello and welcome to Writing Black, the Griot's podcast about all things black and literary and wordy. And I am, as always, your host, Maisha Kai, lifestyle editor of The Griot. Today we have a really special guest with what I consider to be a really special book. Uh, Tara M. Stringfellow is with us today with her acclaimed novel, Memphis. Um, Very exciting for me to have this conversation. I'm trying not to, like, get too fangirly about it. Um... This is, am I wrong? This is your debut, right, Tara? <laughs> yes, this is my, yes, this, this is actually the first time I've ever written fiction. I've never written a short story. This is it. Well, this was like a nice, fun hobby. A nice, fun hobby, she says, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> which is amazing <laughs> to hear because we're talking about a book that is, to date, a national bestseller. This has been picked as a Jenna Book Club pick on today. Um, it is a been called a rhapsodic hymn to black women by the New York Times Book Review. So I would say nice first go out of the gate. <laughs> I'm like, were you were you surprised by that response to this to this novel? Half of me says yes, okay. and I'm still very surprised. You ain't got and to be I'm modest. Very- I won't be. I will not. Judge you. But the other <laughs> half of me is like, I knew, mm-hmm. I knew it'd be a hit All right. from when I sat down and I wrote the title. Okay. Memphis, the thing I wrote, I said, this is going to be so good. Nobody ready for this. <laughs> and then I would chuckle like that, like you will laugh and write a paragraph. And I said, oof, oof, we... Well, I love that. I love that. I love that story. And I love um, where it fits in this moment in time and every moment in time it captures because this is a narrative that spans several generations and 70 years and you know let's start at the beginning really I mean what was the genesis of Memphis for you uh you know it was the 2016 presidential election and Donald Trump had won Donald Trump wins the presidency Mm. Uh, it was my birthday I was devastated Mm -hmm. and I honestly thought that us Black Lives Matter poets, as I consider myself, would be jailed for our writing, would be put in cages, would be censored. And so I knew, I felt that night a sense of urgency as an artist to write something that would stand the test of time, even if I was killed for it. And so that is, that's what the book is. It's my... um, It's my final declaration of self in a country designed to enslave me. We're going to make it, she thought. We're going to make it. She locked the 92 Chevy Astro van with her two children and one husky inside it. Wait here. Four brown eyes stared back, eyes that were hungry for an answer, for home. They reminded Miriam of lost soldiers. She walked slowly toward the Exxon filling station, hyper-aware of her surroundings. The only black woman for miles she knew. A mountain ridge crested like a tsunami before her. A blue that would put any ocean to shame, she thought. Almost home, Mir. Almost home. That is a word and a half. And of course, you know, I think, (laughs) I love that you pointed out that you are also a poet. (laughs) 
Um, because I mean, you know, when you talk about writing and, and just like the mediums of writing, I mean, one of the reasons that I created this podcast is because I'm, I'm as a writer myself who writes across genres, I'm always interested right. in other writers and their craft and how they arrive, where they arrive and how they build the stories that they do. Um, right. you know, Memphis is as much about a time, um, right. and I, you know, uh, in a place, <laughs> obviously a right. place, um, as it is about politics and love and family and uh, femaleness, <laughs> you know, in the world. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I was so taken in by this novel. I, you know, again, I, I said I didn't want a fangirl, but I'm going to have to say this thing. I read a lot of books, obviously. It's what I do. Um, All right. And uh, I, I, Albert, our producer, can back me up on this. I said to him, I said, Albert, this book is really, really, like, incredible. Like, this is an incredible book. This is, like, one of the most incredible books I've read in a while. And that is no shade to any of our other tremendous authors who come on this show. But when I say that, it was because um, it's very rare that I read a book that not only reminds me of why I first fell in love with fiction, right, but also reminded me of why I fell in love with black female narratives, because this is a book that for me reading it, um, and, and this is the most ringing endorsement I can give to our listeners, um, that for me reading it reminded me of the books that I fell in love with in my, I would say my early adolescence, you know, like when you're first getting turned on to like a color purple or for colored girls or, you know, my, one of my personal favorites, Sula or women of Brewster place, like all of these books. And I know I'm not the only one who's made those comparisons. I've seen some of your other endorsements from other writers. And, uh, oh. I think that they are very true. Like a lot of times, you know, we see these promo packages and we're like, eh, sure. You know, to our listeners, it is, it is worth the hype. Um, and it's Goodness. a simple but interwoven I tale. I question at all. There is no question because I needed to declare. I needed to declare my adoration for this book first. <laughs> um, and I, I wanted to set that up that way because um, when people make those comparisons between this, your debut, debut novel, and some of those books that I just mentioned, um, do you still have that sense that, that half of surprise, that half of, you know... Yeah, I knew it. Or, I mean, what was yeah. your aim when you when you set out to do it? I I set out to write. Um, you know, I wrote it with my dad really over COVID. Wow. Um, he's my first reader. He's my first editor. I send him everything I write before I send it to my agent or my editor at Penguin Write uh, Random House, Katie Nishimoto, a brilliant woman. But he taught me everything I know mm. about writing. And so it was very um, humbling to me to write it, to rewrite it, to edit it at a time in which I thought we might all die. Like there was no vaccine. Um, and and so I wrote it with all of me, not knowing that the world would ever see it or we would survive enough to get to read it. And so I'm very grateful and humbled um, by all of the acclaim and the attention it's gotten. But it is so surreal still too for me because i wrote it in my daddy's basement with like with two pennies to rub together <laughs> and all y'all keep talking about it it's, <laughs> it's on a mug you know uh, no i you know listen i love that st i love that 
that that origin story because it remind you know it, it really drives home the fact that when it comes to the writer and the page, whether you know the people who are listening right now, whether you're aspiring to write, um, whether you just want to know how the sausage is made, you know, when it comes to like putting out these books, um, it is just as it can be just that simple. I also love that your father was a part of the crafting of this book because it's yeah. such a female driven narrative. I mean, it really is. This is a for in many ways a a, a women's story um Mm -hmm. and one of the questions i found myself wanting you know to ask while i was reading is i was like wow you know is is the world more ready to read this book now than they were say when like the color Mm -hmm. purple came out you know like when alice walker got all that beef about this like this man bashing you know this black man bashing book um you know, yeah. men are not the heroes here in Memphis. I mean, you know, they're not. Nobody's entirely a hero or a villain, and I love that too. These are nuanced characters, but I don't have to disagree with that. Okay, I think well, please, please do state your case, think, man. This is your I book, so Rarin uh, is one hell of a hero. Okay, um, and all he has ever done, um, and all Jax has ever really done too, is to strive their best to put their life on the line for a country. Um, and, and, and to provide for their families. Mm -hmm. And they did so in the most, uh, heroic of ways. They served overseas in wars that took and took and took from people, um, all to come back and to build a life for their black children. Mm -hmm. I don't know a greater love than that. So I'm going to have to disagree that there are, uh, Stanley, is a male hero. Stanley is a male hero. He is. I will give you that. Yes. And I will give, yes, Myron. Myron too. I would definitely say Myron too. You know, just, you know, we're, we're running out of character. There's a family tree here, but yes. You know, and of course there are villains in every story, mm-hmm. but I feel for Derek mm-hmm. and for Uncle Bird and for Jax and I don't want folk to hate them. I want mm-hmm. folk to hate the lack of opportunities that this country afforded those characters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is why they are who they are because nobody gave a damn about them because they were black boys into men. So well, it was a satirical uh, characterization of the, um, of the oppressive systems against black men in this country. I can hear so. that. That's I can hear why that. I like my men characters. I fight for them. Listen, I, you know, women, I love hearing black, that. I love hearing that. Black. But I mean, I think that actually you just kind of proved my point because, again, like I don't think Alice Walker hated her male characters either. Like I don't, I don't think she did. Um, I think you know you write them with a tenderness, and you also write them with um, a a real lens on like what that does to a person's psyche and, and the, and the horror that we can exact on each other when we've been through a certain amount of brutality. So that that's, what's real. We're going to get into this a little bit more when we come right back with more Tara Stringfellow and more of Memphis when Ready Black returns. Okay, we are back with more Writing Black and our guest today, Tara M. Stringfellow, and this incredible book, Memphis, which I've already named one of my favorites <laughs> of the year. You know, no shade to anybody else. This was just such a great narrative for me. I just really loved it. I sunk my teeth into it. I wanted to read it again and again. I cried. It was really the writing of it. And I don't think that there's any coincidence here that you are a poet. Um, 
you said this is your first time writing fiction. So let like let's talk about that approach to doing this. I mean, that's really ambitious. And how was it similar and dissimilar from what you were used to doing on the page? I had fun with it. You know, it's Good. it's because I'm not a fiction writer and this was my first time, I said, well, I can do whatever I want. Like, there are no <laughs> rules. And so I feel very liberated in this genre because I'm new to it. So I can make mm -hmm. mistakes. I can fumble. And it's still, I'll still patch it up and make it look a kind of way. But, you know, I just wanted to have a lot of fun writing. Um, I always have fun writing, but sometimes it can be a torment. And I didn't want this to be. I knew I was going to dedicate four to, you know, six years of my life on this. It better be um, fun to write. And to, and I wanted to be in that world and in the world of the characters and get to know them more. And I don't know. It was a joy. It was such a joy and a blessing to write. I had the time of my life. Well, I mean, ditto for reading it. But, you know, uh, specifically, I mean, I think building characters is a thing. And, I, I you know, so many of the writers that we talk to who write fiction. Um, you know, I ask them about this process and, you know, and one of our writers recently talked about how, you know, she really has to live with them for a really long time. Um, others say, no, I knew these people, these are people in my life, you know, so I yeah. just kind of had to move huh. some things around and, but there, I had a composite for who this person was based right. on somebody I already knew. Um, how did that play out for you? I guess a little bit of both. You know, I definitely lived with the characters. Um, but also I could just remember things about my own family, about my own aunties, something mm -hmm. that was said, sister said, mm -hmm. on a voice, a shape of a woman in an old photo. So I had a lot of great primary sources to work with. Mm -hmm. um, it was a treasure trove, really, of ancestral memories and family folklore. So it was, again, rather easy to I wish I could say. Listen, every you know what? I would like to dispel the I would love to dispel the narrative that everything for us has to be anguish. I love hearing that this was joyful for you. I love hearing that like it was easy for you. Because I do think that so much of what we think of as producing work in general, let alone something that people are calling great, is supposed to be mired in some sort of like, you know, trauma and torture and anguish. And I love the fact that this was a joyful exercise for you, particularly at these two really pivotal and, and terrifying junctures in, in recent history that we all have lived through. I think that like this idea of a novel as reprieve from that yeah. is gorgeous yeah, you is. know i'm here for it i'm like yeah i love this like that a novelist therapy i think is is another one to explore so i would save up yeah. all my pennies and go right on a beach in cuba <laughs> with somebody cuban son like fantasy <laughs> he had a coconut in a, lit, in a lit menthol he rolled himself i learned the kind of life writing this book i <laughs> would you know, I <laughs> in Florence overlooking like vineyards. It was ridiculous. It sounds I idyllic, like, yeah. Chocolatey, poor black self from North Memphis in Italy finishing a book. It was a t it was a time, let me tell you. Well, that's how the magic happens. I want to hear more about the time, and we are going to hear more about the time. I'm going to take a quick break, and we're going to come right back with more Tara M. Stringfellow and more Writing Black. All right, Ms. Ma'am, Ms. 
Tara M. Stringfellow with this incredible book, Memphis. So you were just talking about sitting in Florence, finishing this book, looking out on the vineyards. And it sounds like, you know, you know, eat, pray, love, you know, some glory from scratch, mm -hmm. the whole thing, you know, we're, 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 we're there, we're, we're living it. Um, and you've lived all over the world, including here in my home city of Chicago. Um, yes. You know, you, you are a worldly person. You are an attorney as well. Yeah. So there's that part of your history as well that's coming in here. Um, you know, and you're bringing all of this back home, right? All of this experience back home. I want to talk about Memphis. You know, this is a place that, as you illustrate in the novel, as you bring very real life events to fore in this fictional piece, Memphis continues to be, to this very day, a uh, just like just like Chicago, a place that is very rich in history, um, very rich in black influence, black. Uh, culture, black success, also black trauma, black, you know, um, struggle in many ways uh, in terms of the disenfranchisement of large swaths mm -hmm. of, of the population in each of these major cities, the major historic cities. Tell me what Memphis means to you. Music. Yeah, it's a musical place here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, gospel music is a big thing that we've been leaning on, especially in the wake of Tyree Nichols' mm -hmm. death. I've been listening to a lot of gospel records at home at night. And, you know, my mom says when something horrible, something tragic happens, we praise him. And when something beautiful happens, we praise him. So that's what I think about when I think about shy. And when I think about Memphis, I consider myself half and half from both. My daddy from the south side of Chicago, from, mm. um, yeah, Chicago Heights, Ford I, Heights. I know it Marcum. well. I know right. it well, yes. Shout out to Miss Vivian and Markham, who would do my hair for years. I love it. Uh, what was that on, like 167th and Dixie Highway? <laughs> yes. <laughs> If you knew how close I grew up to Dixie Highway, you would fall out right now. That's so funny. Right, right. Second <laughs> and Dobson, Stoney and Dobson, like mm -hmm. all the, I love Chicago. Um, and I also love Memphis. Like, I love beautiful black spaces in this country. Mm. Like, isn't it something where you can walk around the neighborhood and know, like, everybody knows you. They've known your family for generations. Mm -hmm know where to go to get the best food, the best plate your hair did. I don't know, being in the south side of Chicago, the south suburbs, and being in North Memphis, I feel so authentically, beautifully Black. And so I just wanted to write a novel that praised these spaces. Every time I would turn on the TV or see a television show or a movie, it was always showing so much death and destruction in our neighborhoods. And yeah, we do have a lot of that, but we also have some of the most beautiful people mm -hmm. I think ever walked the face of this earth. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I really just wanted to write a novel that acknowledged uh, that duality. You know, and that is, um, yes, that is very present and clear, yes. The night before Miriam and Jack Scott married, August decided that her wedding present to her sister would be the gift of song. Jax's recent first lieutenant rank had come with orders to be in North Carolina, his new wife by his side by the start of fall. 
The two sisters were sitting in their bedroom, hair wrapped in rollers, when Miriam said, Sing for me tomorrow, will you? There was a catch in her voice, and August could see desperation in her older sister's eyes. In all their years together, this was the only favor Miriam had ever asked of August. Always think about this, um, this quote, and I'll recite it real quick. We younger Negro artists who create now intend to express our individual dark-skinned selves without fear or shame. If white folk are pleased, we're glad. If not, it doesn't matter. We know we are beautiful and ugly too. The tom-tom laughs and the tom-tom cries. If black folk are pleased, we are glad. If not, their displeasure doesn't matter either. We build our temples for tomorrow, strong as we know how, and we stand upon the mountain, free within ourselves. End quote. Langston Hughes wrote that in 1925, and I still feel as if it's very much applicable today. Memphis is my individual dark-skinned expression of self. You know, um, I love and that. I stand down. I love that. Um, you know, I, I love that you just did that because you also, so <laughs> you start your book with an incredible quote as well um, that I had never read before, even though I'm a huge Toni Morrison uh, fan and follower for many years. And you talk about, you know, I'm not going to read the whole thing because I, I want people to read. And I think the the it, what a gorgeous quote excerpt to be, be opening this this book with but basically you know you talk about black women having had nothing to fall back on not maleness not whiteness not ladyhood not anything and out of the profound desolation of her reality she may very well have invented herself and you know it's it's only a slight coincidence it's perfect coincidence to me i believe in kismet and here we are it's women's history month and you know you have written this work that, you know, easily falls into historical fiction as much as anything else, because we're really reaching back in time um, yeah. for these narratives that I think so many of us, you know, like I saw my great grandparents in this. I saw my aunties. I saw my myself and my, you know, cousins and that turmoil. I love I love the way you talk about beauty in this book, um, not just physical beauty, you know, Visual art is really big in this book, which you don't always see in a, in a written work. Um, right. What was the inspiration behind having your protagonist be a visual artist? My uh, um, prom date, Siobhan <laughs> Bullock from Craigmont, class of 03, was an artist. <laughs> and, um, he is a very well-known muralist throughout the city of Memphis. He does a uh, beautiful murals he did the isaac hayes soulsville mm. mural uh our memphis listeners they'll know that mural very well so i just kind of wanted to shout out him i love it that's it like i, I just kind of i i use like <laughs> different things in my life sometimes no but you're so you know the reason i ask is because you're so detailed in the way that you talk about the uh, process of creating visual art i mean it's as if you are there in the studio with the charcoals and the oils and the watercolors and the you know so oh, i was i was really well, curious to know what? if that was part of your own background i grew up yeah i grew up drawing and painting and mm -hmm. i can draw a little bit but not like you know professionally i just loved doing it um but no i just i wanted to kind of shout out all the memphis artists we have so many visual artists here in the city uh who really paint the town uh, and 
I just wanted to acknowledge their efforts to make this city beautiful. That's it. Well, you did so. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about the process of bringing Memphis to the page when we come back with more Writing Black. We are back with Writing Black and Tara M. Stringfellow, whose book Memphis has garnered so much acclaim, and rightfully so. I am, again, I swooned over at this side. Listen, I knew, like, <laughs> can we talk about your acknowledgement section, actually? I've never ever in my whole entire life in the I can't even I mean countless books I've read have seen an, an acknowledgement section that became its own like short story and I was like weeping at the acknowledgements like because <laughs> it was so beautifully I was like this is so beautifully written oh my gosh like you know it really it was like another scene from the book um you know, and there's so many people who are obviously such a, a huge part of this that just part of your immediate family. But listen, I'm not trying. I don't. I don't. Sure. I don't. You know, I don't give praise that's undue. But <laughs> you can ask. You can ask sure. my writers. I, I'm a very exacting editor. But um, I was, you know, really struck by that. I mean, it's just such a rarity. You know, most people just kind of go, "Okay, thank you to da 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 for making this happen." Um, and you really, I think. As much as, you know, quilts are another motif in this book, it, it felt very much like that, this tree of life that you were kind of creating for us in this acknowledgement. Uh, I wanted to just talk about, like, words, like the, like being in love with words and the use of words and how we, how we use words, because you're obviously in love with words. <laughs> like it's, you can tell when somebody's in love with language. Um, why, was that a, why was that a deliberate choice for you? Or was it? Maybe it wasn't. Maybe you're just writing love letters. I don't know. But it was. It came across like another yeah. scene. Uh, I wanted, I wanted folk to know that I didn't get here alone. You know, it mm. took a village mm -hmm. to get me here. Um, it took God and lots of miracles um, and folk taking chances on me, like my agent Sumia mm -hmm. signed with me when I only had 22 pages of the novel written, or my brilliant editor, Katie Nishimoto, who worked with me through COVID when we didn't think there was a cure or we'd survive. And, um, you know, my father, my mother, I, my friends, you know, all the drunk brunches that, <laughs> in which they, they get your together, you better write something, girl. You know, like, mm -hmm. I just wanted to, um, to say a heartfelt thank you uh, to those people who uh, who brought me here and who still carry me in so many uh, ways. I'm very I'm very blessed, and uh, I'm still trying to figure out why that is. But um, I like this. Maybe whole, it was so you could do this whole ride. Then <laughs> it has been something else. And sometimes at night, I just have to sit back and say, "Wow." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Folk really love me. So thank you, Pops. Because when I was all of four, you gave me a gift that would shape the rest of my life. That poets can tell stories to. Oorah. Uh, we're going to talk more about that. And I want to talk a little bit more about these incredible professors, because there's quite a few of them that are, that are some, some well-known names there that you've, you've studied with um, when we come back with more Writing Black. 
All right, Writing Black returns with our guest today, Tara M. Stringfellow, and her incredible debut novel, Memphis. If you have not heard about this book yet, you will, <laughs> because it's, it's, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Um, it, it's really hitting on all levels. Uh, you are a poet. You are an Please. attorney. Uh, you are now yes. a novelist. You have had some incredible teachers yeah, along this path who made it into that, uh, that list of acknowledgement. Um, that I was so moved by. Um, you know, people will be prone to tell you when it comes to the creative arts that you either have it or you don't. Um, obviously, there are still shepherds who guide us. There are people who help cultivate the craft. What did your teachers do for you in terms of giving you the confidence to even feel like you can embark on something like this? And you've been trying to make me cry this whole damn I'm not, interview. I am not. No. no. Just because you made me cry does not mean I it's, would make you cry. <laughs> it's true. I'm offended. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, Barbara Walters, I'm just like, give it to me. <laughs> what have my teachers done for me? Oh, my God. What haven't they done for me? You know, I think about Mr. Cook, this, you know, white man in North Memphis teaching all these black kids. And one day, uh, one day he brought in uh, persimmons from his garden to teach Greek mythology because we had oh, never yeah. eaten a persimmon. None of us knew or would probably ever know what that would taste like. And the fact that he fed these black children mm -hmm. from his own garden. That's so moving. That's you so know, moving. what teachers mean to me. Yeah. I wouldn't be here without um, my teachers, my my primary teachers. Um, God, I, I remember Miss Pillow back in Okinawa. She was my first grade teacher of, you know, professors of mine who pushed me. Mm -hmm. Reginald Gibbons out at Northwestern created an entire degree for me. No one wow. else has ever um, graduated with a track in uh, both poetry and fiction with a master's degree from that university. I'm the mm -hmm. only graduate. You know, I... Hmm. Sure, I got a talent, yes. I, I, I guess so, but um, I worked hard yeah. at it perfect yeah. it and I listened to my teachers um to Dr. Tracy Von Manley you know who taught me how to quilt uh yes you won you made me cry I there did not intend to and that that might be actually a first for this podcast actually so I'm no. just gonna say I listen you, you the book the book is remarkable so are you so there you go there's a first for everything just like that degree um, I'm also going to shout out Dr. Hakeem Adabudi, who I know you studied with, Dr. who you know, is the founder my, of Third World Press, <laughs> and he he's here in Chicago. my first collection of poetry. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love oh, it. God. So, yeah, and, and I'm, always, I'm always shouting him out because I think he's incredible, and he's such a living legend at this point. Uh, we are going to be right back with more Tara M. Stringfellow and more Writing Black. So, Tara, we were just talking about teachers, and I want to turn uh, the lens to something else, um, which is, and this is, 
at the risk of, you know, making you cry again. Um, oh, my God. You know, we talked about cry. writing history. We talked about we talked about writing place. We talked about building characters. We talked about, um, you know, the importance of our teachers. I'm sitting there. I'm I, listening to your story about, you know, Mr. Cook, who brought you all the persimmons. I, I was like, and I feel him in Stanley. You know, I see I, I see these right. like correlations. Right. right? Um, but I do want to talk about as much as, you know, this book is about this book is about so many things. But. Obviously, as joyful as this book was for you to write, you were also you also tasked yourself with writing trauma. And that is, I think, another um, that's a, that's a muscle. That's a that's a skill set. Um, yes. I don't think trauma is easy to I mean, it's, it's not easy to to experience, obviously, but to recreate and recreate in a visceral way, um, right. I think, is really challenging. And how did you kind of like hold your place within that as you were writing it? I I left. I went to the Outer Banks. I rented a house on a beach, and I went on vacation because I was writing the Myron chapter, his murder chapter, mm. on the anniversary of my own grandfather's lynching here in the city of Memphis, May 30th, 1960, and that was 60 years before the death of George Floyd that same May 30th. Mm -hmm. So it was Memorial Day and I was writing a chapter about Myron thinking about my grandfather watching a man, George Floyd, be, you know, lynched on national television. Mm -hmm. uh, so I needed a vacation. You know, I am only human. Yeah. Uh, I'm only, yeah, I'm not made out of, you know, stone. And sometimes I get sad and stuff, but I need to go away. And I just needed, I needed to go away. I needed to relax. I needed to eat good food, like soft shell crab and just uh, look at the stars and uh, remind myself why we're all still human. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was incredibly hard. Mm -hmm. like, these are people who are dying in the streets and for what? Yeah. Over some counterfeit $20 bill. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I went away. I was angry. Did you find that the act of writing about trauma and anger and revenge, you know, vengeance as it were, and, and restitution in other ways, um, right. was that cathartic for you at all? Um, hmm. Sometimes. Like, all the racists in my book, I made a list of names of all the racist co-workers I've ever had, and then just crisscross, and that's how I came up with the character. So that felt nice. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that was... That was it's like an exorcism. Day. I love it. <laughs> right, right. That was, I crisscrossed, like, every, but everybody who know me, like if we went to school together or we work together and you see your name in there, you know why. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I thought, well, but these white folk are still racist. Mm -hmm. In the real world, they're still mm -hmm. out there in positions of corporate, uh, you know, America, yeah. there's still attorneys who I know are deeply racist and working in the justice system in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So... You know. Yeah, we take our power back where we can, I guess. 
Right, right. Mm-hmm. So it it's kind of like a dual edged sword. So some parts, yeah, I guess I felt a little revenge. But then I thought, well, I'm still, I still, even if I'm in a bins, I'm still in a coop. You know what I'm saying? Fair. You That's know fair. What I'm That's fair. <laughs> Absolutely fair. I was like, I can't really argue with that. That is what it is. Right. <laughs> like, like I still have to deal with with being a black female body mm-hmm. in this society. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> yes to no, it felt. Being a black female writer myself, I think you're right. I mean, the power, whatever power trip you may get there is, is it's temporary. I mean, we still live in the world that right. we live in. We still um, yeah. need the things that we need. We still need the change that we need. Um, yeah, all those kind of things. But for for a few pages, you you get to imagine things another way, I suppose. Um, I want to talk about about what else you're imagining. Uh, but we're going to take one final break, and we'll be back with more writing black. All right, we've got Tara M. Stringfellow with us today on Writing Black, and we've been talking about her incredible novel, Memphis. Mainly, I think we've actually just kind of been kicking about it almost because I think, like, it's it's like, so relatable. So I feel like this wasn't an interview at all. I feel you know, like this was a nice brunch. And, and, and that's kid- how I want it to feel. Like, you know, Writing Black is a podcast. We're really just here to have conversations about this okay. incredible thing that we get to do, right? And it is an incredible gift that you have. I think it's an incredible book. Um, I want to know uh, what's next for Memphis and what's next for you, if you are at liberty to share. Yeah, I'm editing a poetry collection that'll be out in 2024 with Dial. And I am, last summer, as of last summer, I went to Italy. I summer every year in Italy. And I started my second novel there. Mm. Yeah. And so I can't wait to go back this summer to finish up that second. Um, But I'm always going to write. Like, writing is so much, it's, it's, it's a joy for me. I don't know what else to do. I'm not really good at anything. (laughs) (laughs) either so I have to write um and I and I I'm so you know I'm so honored and humbled by all of the press and the attention that Memphis has gotten but my dad we were on the phone and he said to me he said you know Memphis is just one of your books mm-hmm. you're gonna have a whole you know um uh, a whole legacy of literature under the Stringfellow name and that mm-hmm. really uh inspires me to keep going to keep writing I'm so excited. As a writer, I'm always more excited for the next book. I think that that's okay. Me- yeah, yeah, I think that's okay. I, I, I love that you're already, you're already looking to the next thing. I, you know, I ask every single one of our guests because I think it's, you know, important, just as much as we talked about how uh, vital teachers are to, um, you know, developing one's craft, no matter how much innate talent they have. Also, you know, I often find that the best writers are also great readers, who do you, who inspires you as a writer? Maybe, maybe it's not a book. It could be, you know, it could be music. I know, you know, because you come from middle, Musical City and music is a huge part My of Memphis writers? as well. Yeah. Who are your favorite writers? I love, well, for poets. Can we do poets first? Absolutely. Poets. All right. Poets. Sonia Sanchez. Yes. Is God. She is the standard. She is who you beat in poetry. She can just, she's the most amazing writer ever. 
Um, I love Lucille Clifton, mm. Nikki Giovanni, mm-hmm. Caroline Rogers, um, Haki Matabuti, of course, uh, Natasha Trethaway, um, Aracellus Gourmet, mm. Ross Gay, uh, Claudia Ranking. Oh, I love Claudia Rankin. I do. Right, right, yes. right. Yes. Um, so those are those are my favorites for the poetry. Dig it. As in in fiction, oh, I don't know. Like I love Alice Walker, of course, mm-hmm. and Toni Morrison. Oh, she's hard. I can't read her. Like I have three degrees, and sometimes I don't know. It's, and it's, she- I'm glad that you're admitting that. <laughs> no, I'm not smart enough. I wish more people it. would admit that. Yes. No, no. And then I had to teach it one year. The blow aside, I said, how? Lord Jesus, I'm not, I don't know what she's talking about. Lord, I'm going to ask these 10th graders. They shouldn't even have to think about this. I don't know what's going on in this damn book. <laughs> but I love her. I love her. But mm-hmm. I put like, woof. You know, you read her sober in the morning and <laughs> you try with, with a notebook and you try and figure it out. Um, Jacqueline Woodson mm. is one hell of a writer. Yes. Yes. Can move mountains. Yes. Uh, with her writing. I don't know how she does it. I don't, I don't know how she does it. One paragraph of hers is like, Wow. Well, I yeah. appreciate you giving us a glimpse into a little bit of how you do it. Um, you know, I am, I don't know if we're all going to be able to get away to Italy this summer, but I am looking forward to what comes next from you. And again, congratulations on an incredible debut. This is a fantastic book. I think this Women's History Month, you know, even those people who don't consider themselves readers will find a piece of themselves in Memphis. So I highly, highly recommend and Tara, thank you so much for making time for us today and sharing lovely. some craft with us here on Writing Black. Thank y'all so much for having me. This was a delight. Oh, I a love delight. it. I love it. Such a pleasure. And when you're in right. Chicago, please look me up so we can hang out. I was just <laughs> about to talk words. Come down to Memphis, you know? But yeah, let's. I would love to meet in person one day. Uh, thank you so you've done me and my city a great honor by having me today so I really appreciate it thank you I think that interview was just as great a ride with uh, Tara Stringfellow in Memphis and you know what's so special about letting a place take center stage in narrative is that it becomes a character in and of itself Um, similarly I really um, you know I I love to recommend a book every week that is based on our interviews and it is a little segment we like to call my favorites. And this week I'm going to recommend in every mirror she's black. This is another debut novel. This one is by Lola Akimari Ackerstrom. And if you, uh, if the name didn't tip you off, this is a a book that spans uh, cultures and continents. Um, this is about uh, black women who are navigating life in America and uh, in uh, Sweden, and it is so. Um, it's so striking, and it's so just like Memphis, such a nuanced take on uh, black women's lives and survival mechanisms and, and the myriad issues 
that we deal with just by virtue of identity. And it's also a really striking piece of fiction that I, I really think people enjoy. So In Every Mirror, She's Black is my favorite for this week. That and, of course... Memphis shawl. So get into these and we will see you next week on another episode of Writing Black. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of Writing Black. As always, you can find us on the Grio app or wherever you find your podcasts. I'm political scientist, author, and professor, Dr. Christina Greer, and I'm host of The Blackest Questions on the Griot's Black Podcast Network. This person invented ranch dressing around 1950. Who are they? I have no idea. This all began as an exclusive Black History trivia party at my home in Harlem with family and friends. And they got so popular, it seemed only right to share the fun with our Griot listeners. Each week, we invite a familiar face on the podcast to play. What was the name of the person who was an enslaved chief cook for George Washington and later ran away to freedom? In 1868, this university was the first in the country to open a medical school that welcomed medical students of all races, genders, and social classes. What university was it? No, th this is why I like doing stuff with you because I leave educated. I was not taught this in Alabama public schools. Question yeah. number three, you ready? Yes, let me okay. try to redeem myself. How did we go from Kwanzaa to like, these obscure sport, This is like the New York Times crossword from a Monday to a Saturday. Right or wrong? Because all we care about is the journey and having some fun while we do it. I'm excited and also a little nervous. Oh, listen, no need to be nervous. And as I tell all of my guests, this is an opportunity for us to educate ourselves because Black history that. is American history. So we're just going to have some fun. Listen, some people get zero out of five. Some people get five out of five. It doesn't matter. We're just going to be on a little intellectual journey together. Latoya Cantrell? That's right. Mary okay. Latoya Cantrell. Hercules Posey. Mm. Born in 1754, and he was a member of the Mount Vernon slave community widely admired for his culinary skills. I'm going to guess Afropunk. Close. It's okay. Afro-Nation. So last year, according to my research, it's Samuel Wilson, a.k.a. Falcon. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. I, I, am, I am disputing this. I'm very, 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 very 99.9999 sure that it is Representative John Lewis, who is also from the state of Alabama. That lets you know, Christina, we got some goodness come out of Alabama. There is something in the water in Alabama, and you are absolutely correct. The harder they come. Close. Oh, wait, uh, the harder they fall? That's right. I'm one of those people that, that just changes one word. <laughs> I mean, I know this show too well. I just don't know nothing today. It's I'm going to pour myself a little water while you tell me the answer. The answer is Seneca Village, which began in 1825 with the purchase of land by a trustee of the AME Zion Church. You know why games like this make me nervous? I don't know if I know enough black. Do I know enough? How black am I? Oh, my Lord, they, they gonna, we going to find out in public. So give us a follow, subscribe, and join us on The Blackest Questions.